following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so uh, it's Advent season, and what we're doing at the moment is uh, looking at a couple of passages in the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, which are prophecies pointing towards the coming of Christ, pointing towards the birth of Jesus. So we looked at this prophecy last week. Those of you who were here, you may remember in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy about Emmanuel. We talked about how that prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, several hundred years before Jesus, uh, this prophecy of God with us, and then how it was fulfilled through Jesus and how Christ is our Emmanuel, God incarnate among us, and how that prophecy continues to be fulfilled among us now because Christ is still with us now and how that makes the difference between living out of fear and living out of faith. So what I want to do this morning is go a little bit further into the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, if you have the Bible app on your device or your phone, pull it out, start it up, get it running. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Another well-known prophecy which points towards the birth of Jesus. And Jane is going to come and uh, read this passage for us, I think, this morning. Where are you, Jane? There. Thank you. So back in 2014, there was a group from our church that went on a two-week trip to Israel, toured around the Holy Land, uh, spent some time in and around Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, a number of other places, went up north to Galilee. And it happened to be the time, of course we didn't plan this, but it just happened to be the time, uh, during the latest major conflict between Israel and Hamas, um, Hamas being based in Gaza. And so you had um, Hamas firing these rockets into Israel, and the Israeli military encroaching into Gaza, and the whole thing was fairly unstable, it was fairly volatile at the time. We thought about maybe cancelling the trip, but our tour guide said, no, no, come on over, you'll be fine, it'll be great. He was already over there, didn't want to lose the money. So we went, and uh, literally the first day, so we flew into Tel Aviv, and five minutes off the bus the first day, the emergency sirens start going off, which is a sign that there's been a rocket fired over, and that it's reasonably close, and that you need to take shelter. And so being Kiwis, you know, unaccustomed to such things, the first thing we did was pull out our cameras, and, you know, we sort of looking around the sky, seeing if we could take a photo of the rocket. In fact, you could. You could, you could trace the path that this rocket had taken right overhead. Uh, but the major cities within Israel have such a good anti-missile system that as soon as a rocket's detected coming over, they'll fire up a, a, a detonator, and that intercepts the rocket and takes that. And, you, and we could see right overhead um, the interception point between this rocket and this detonator. And then, so our tour guide then ushered us into a slightly more safe place because what you've got to watch out for then, of course, is all the shrapnel that starts falling down. And so we started to wonder what kind of a tour this was going to be and whether this would be the way of it. Uh, but that was the only time it happened through the whole trip. And the rest of the time, we were absolutely uh, fine. We felt very safe. Um, if anything, it just felt kind of eerie. You'd go to these places and even the hotels we stayed in, it kind of felt like we had the place to ourselves because a lot of tours had pulled out. Um, but there we were, and, and that was fine. I think the time I felt the most apprehensive was sitting on the plane, um, waiting to leave Israel, and you're sitting on the tarmac there, and you're thinking, well, you know, if, if a rocket came over now, and they did get reasonably close to the airport, 
you can't really escape a, a full plane very quickly. So that'd be the end of it. So I was quite pleased when we, when we got out of Israeli airspace finally and headed for home. But there was kind of, I mean, we felt safe, but there was sort of that air of apprehension over the trip of not quite knowing how things were going to go. Now, if you, if you rewind history about two and a half thousand years to where we are in this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, same part of the world uh, in Israel, and in these days it was called Judah, that bottom part of Israel, and they didn't have anything like an anti-missile system as Israel has today. They didn't need one, of course, because no one was firing rockets in. Uh, but they didn't have nearly the kind of weaponry that Israel has today. But they were still engaged in a lot of international conflict. Because at this time, Judah, the nation of Judah, it was a tiny little nation, um, smaller than Israel is today, and it was surrounded by all these big nations. It was surrounded by, by much larger nations and nations that really were bent on conquest and expansion because this was the era of empire building when nations went out regularly, conquered other nations, swallowed them up, and international borders were changing all the time. And so you have this tiny little nation of Judah and you've got Assyria in the north, this great powerhouse nation. You've got Egypt in the south. And for Judah, there was a constant threat of war. It was a constant sense that at any moment, any day, a foreign army could, could march into town. I mean, if you're living in Judah at the time, if you're a family living in Jerusalem, for example, any day a foreign army could, could march in, they could burn your village to the ground, they could turn you into slaves, they could carry you off into exile, they could wipe you out altogether, whatever they wanted to do. There was this constant sense of imminent war, imminent conflict, imminent threat, violence, oppression. That's just what you lived with. That was just life in Judah at the time. And there's some similarities to living in Israel and the Palestinian territories today. And so at the time, at the time Isaiah is writing, at the time this prophecy is written, the, the national mood in Judah is really bleak. I mean, there's this sense of doom, a sense of despair, gloominess about the nation. Uh, there's, there's a constant threat of war, and so there's a constant fear, there's a constant anxiety and uncertainty about the future of this nation because Judah was such a weak, small little country. Uh, the national mood was very, very dark at the time. And it's into that situation, it's into that kind of psyche that Isaiah speaks this word of the Lord, this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. And you've got, to, you've got to capture that sense of darkness, that sense of despair and gloom that was going on in order to really hear the words that Isaiah says because they form such a contrast with how people were thinking and feeling at the time. You listen to the words again at the beginning of this prophecy, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There's this national mood of despair and gloom and darkness and, and hopelessness and fear. And yet Isaiah is speaking these words of hope. He's speaking about a day when, when, when hope is going to replace fear, when joy is going to replace gloom, when, when peace is going to replace anxiety and when light is going to replace darkness. He's imagining this future which is absolutely different from the future that they were actually experiencing. It couldn't be more different. He just pictures the opposite of the situation that Judah was really encountering at the time. It's totally different reality. And he's so gripped by it. Isaiah is so gripped by this vision of Judah's fortunes being reversed and God bringing this hope and blessing into a situation of darkness. He speaks about this situation as if it's already here. 
Even though it was still in the future, even though it was still coming. Isaiah talks about it in the present tense. He talks about it in the perfect tense. He says in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. Well, none of that had happened yet. God hadn't done anything like that yet. That was still a long way off. But Isaiah, he can see it. He can picture this. And this vision burns so brightly in his heart. He talks about it like it's here. He talks about it like, like it's now. And he paints this incredible contrast with present reality. And really, that's the heart of what the prophets did in the Old Testament. This was the heart of prophetic ministry, that they would speak on God's behalf and they would imagine this future that was a total contrast with present reality. And they would speak God's future into the darkness and the gloominess and the hopelessness of the present. One Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, puts it this way, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. The dominant culture in Judah was darkness and gloom and despair and depression and anxiety. And yet Isaiah speaks a word of hope and a word of peace. And he challenges that present reality. And he can feel it so much. He can feel it in his bones that he speaks about it as if it was already a present reality. And this is not just wishful thinking for Isaiah. It's not just a pipe dream. It's not just a fantasy. This is the very real future that Yahweh is going to bring about. This is the future God's going to bring about. And look how he's going to do it in verse 6. This is the heart of the prophecy. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. See, the way in which God is going to... Isaiah is dealing with these huge issues. He's talking about these huge geopolitical issues of violence and war and injustice and oppression. And he says, you know the way in which God is going to deal with all this? It's going to be through a child. It's going to be through the humblest of means. that The smallest of ways, God is going to bring a child who will address the situation. And as Isaiah describes this child, he uses these phrases, and some of them will be familiar to you if you've sung a lot of Christmas carols, or if you've just been around church for a lot of Christmases, because these are phrases that often get used in reference to Jesus at Christmas time, and so they should, because they do apply to Jesus. But just here, I want to just walk through again this description that Isaiah gives of this child, because it unpacks so much of who Jesus is, and why Jesus has come, and, and what role Jesus has in the world. Isaiah says, verse 6, the government will be on his shoulders. So straight away you know this child's going to be a king. Because the person who has the government on their shoulders in these days was the king. You think of kings and queens today, and especially the British monarchy, the queen is largely a figurehead role, largely a kind of ceremonial role, and separate from the, 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 the actual power of the British parliament. But in these days, the people who carried the government on their shoulders, this was the king. This was the role of the king. He would lead his people. And so straight away, we know this baby is going to be a royal baby. He's going to be a king. In fact, Isaiah goes on to say, he's going to be from the house of David. He's going to be from the line of David. So he's going to come from Israel's greatest king. He'll descend from David. He'll be from the house of David, a son of David, and he will sit on David's throne and he will rule over his people. This is a king. This is a ruler. This is a royal child. And then Isaiah goes on and he uses this, this cluster of phrases, these descriptive phrases to describe what this king is going to be like. He says he will be called Wonderful Counselor. 
That's a funny sounding phrase, wonderful counselor. You know, if you heard that today of somebody, say they're a wonderful counselor, what would you think? You'd think, well, they're, they're a really good therapist. You know, they're, they're, a, they're a brilliant psychologist, a wonderful counselor. You know, if you've got an average counselor, what you need is a wonderful counselor. Um, and one that's not too expensive. That's, you know, that's kind of how we, how we hear that phrase, but that's not what it means in the biblical time. Uh, wonderful, the word, the Hebrew word for wonderful, literally means beyond all human comprehension, beyond any human capacity, beyond anything that a human person can do or say in their own strength, in and of themselves. That's wonderful. That's the idea of the word wonderful. And then counselor, a counselor, was someone who imparts wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So put those two phrases together. What you've got is someone who imparts wisdom beyond all human comprehension. Someone who imparts such profound revelation, it's beyond the capacity of just a mere human being to do this. Someone who gives a depth of insight beyond what could ever be expected of a mere mortal. That's a wonderful counselor. And Isaiah says, that person's coming. That's, what, that's who this king is going to be. So he'll be a wonderful counselor, and he will be mighty God. That's the next phrase. And just think about that. Think about what Isaiah is saying. This king who is coming, he's not just going to be a servant of God. He's not just going to be an ambassador of God. He's not just going to be a messenger of God. Who will he be? Mighty God. This is not just a person. This is not just a human being that Isaiah is talking about. He will be called mighty God. Right here in the Old Testament, you've got this pinnacle of messianic prophecy where the one who is to come will be identified with the presence of God himself. The presence of Yahweh is going to come. It's not just a king who's going to come. It's God who is going to come as a baby, as a king, and he will bring about this future that Isaiah is prophesying. So he will be mighty God, none other than God himself. And then he will be everlasting father, It's a beautiful phrase. It describes the kind of king that this baby is going to be, the kind of king who is coming. So many of the kings in this day, they were tyrants, they were despots, they were dictators. But Isaiah is saying, he's not going to be like that. This king is going to be an everlasting father. He'll be a father. He will nurture his people. He will shepherd his people. He's going to love his people. He's going to love them like a father loves his children. And he's going to guide them. And he's going to care for them. And he's going to nurture them. He's going to tend them. That's that's the kind of father heart that this king will have. So you're starting to get a grasp of the kind of person that Isaiah is talking about here. A leader, a ruler, a king, a royal child. And yet, with the heart of a father, a heart of mercy to love and guide his people. So he'll be called Everlasting Father. And then finally, Prince of Peace. And that picks up this really important Old Testament word, shalom. And it's translated peace. It doesn't, though, just mean a peace in my heart. It doesn't just mean this feeling of peace. It it includes that, but it's much bigger than that. Shalom is peace in every direction. It's a peace between people It's peace between families, it's peace between communities and nations, and ultimately a peace that permeates right throughout the world. It's this peace between humanity and God, between humanity and themselves, between humanity and one another, even a peace between humanity and creation, this beautiful shalom, this peace that covers the entire world. That's what the prophets look towards. I mean, in a sense, that's what every prophet in the Old Testament, this is what all of Israel's prophets looked for and longed for and talked about was this day 
of shalom that God was going to bring about when he was finally going to make the world the way the world was supposed to be again and bring peace to bear on situations of injustice and corruption and violence and war and sin and brokenness and so on. There was going to be this day of shalom when shalom would pervade everything. And the one who's going to bring this peace about will be this, this person here, the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He will be the bearer of peace. He's the one who is going to come and bring this peace into the world. So you've just got this phrase after phrase after phrase of Isaiah just, just creating this description, this picture of who this king will be, who this ruler will be, and he's the one who's going to create the future that Isaiah is describing here. Now, we know that this verse is talking about Jesus because we see with the advantage of hindsight the way this is fulfilled in Jesus. But just think for a minute, if you heard these words of Isaiah at the time Isaiah wrote them, these words were not fulfilled in the immediate future. I mean, for, for, for the nation of Judah at the time, things got a lot worse before they got better. This child was not born in the next generation or two or three or four after Isaiah's day. People kept on waiting. They heard these words, but they kept on wondering, well, where, where is this ruler? Where is this king? And then for Judah, eventually they were conquered. I mean, the fear that is expressed in this passage actually came true. The Babylonians came and conquered them and dragged them off into exile. And so they spent 70 years as an exiled people in Babylon. And you can imagine for people in Judah then, who used to live in Judah, reading these words again in, the, in exile in Babylon, away from their homeland, having been conquered by another nation. I mean, they must have read these words and thought, what on, what on earth was Isaiah on about? He's prophesying this great day for Judah. He's prophesying this wonderful future. He's talking about this child, this king, and so on. But here we are in exile. Here we are in Babylon. We're under the boot of these foreign oppressors. Again, what happened to the glorious future? And it just must have felt to them like Isaiah's words had fallen to the ground. Like nothing was going to come of this. Like this was just empty, hollow talk that had gotten their hopes up, but then just dashed them when these foreign armies marched into town. And yet we know, as you follow the biblical story through, 750 years after Isaiah spoke these words. I mean, think about that. 700 years. And 50 years it took for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Generation came, generation went, saw nothing of this. But 750 years later, a child was born. A son was given. And he fulfilled everything that Isaiah talked about. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 4 for a moment. And let me take you to where that passage in Isaiah 9 is quoted in the New Testament so you can see the link. And it's interesting that when Matthew comes to quote from this prophecy, he doesn't do it when he's describing the birth of Jesus. He doesn't reach for this prophecy, even though that would have made sense. Unto us a child is born, son is given. But he doesn't use it then. He uses it when Jesus starts his public ministry in Galilee. And as Jesus is on the cusp of that ministry, in verse 12 of Matthew 4, Matthew writes this, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And here's the quote. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light 
has dawned. And so Matthew quotes that prophecy. And what he's saying, of course, is that one that Isaiah talked about is here. This person has come. He's arrived. This is him. Matthew's pointing to Jesus and saying, that's him. This guy Isaiah talked about, this is him right here in flesh and blood. And it's interesting, Matthew quotes from the beginning of that prophecy, which talks about Galilee. Did you hear that at the beginning of the Isaiah prophecy? How Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, is going to be honored. And now Matthew's saying, well, Galilee is going to be honored because it's going to be the place where Jesus does a lot of his ministry. It's going to be the place where Jesus starts his ministry and, and does so much of his teaching, miracles, and so on in this place of Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew doesn't quote the rest of the prophecy, but we know from the ministry of Jesus the way that Jesus has come and fulfilled all that Isaiah spoke of. All those phrases, all those descriptions that Isaiah used, they're all fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. Isaiah talked about how the government would be on his shoulders, and Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He's not just carrying the government, the weight of his people. He's carrying all creation, all authority in heaven and on earth rests on the shoulders now of Jesus. He reigns over all things. He's Lord. Isaiah said that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, that he would speak words and do things beyond all human comprehension. And you think of the way that people responded to Jesus' teaching. And people were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. In the Gospel of John, people say no one has ever taught like this. No one has ever said the things he's saying. No one has ever spoken this way. Jesus was a wonderful counselor. He imparted such wisdom, such knowledge, such understanding beyond what any human being could ever impart. Isaiah said he'll be called mighty God. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I mean, Jesus spoke with this innate knowledge that he was God. He was the very presence of God walking and sleeping and eating among his friends. Isaiah said he'll be called the everlasting Father. And Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. He loved his disciples. He loved all people with the love of a father. The love of a parent. He didn't rule with an iron fist. He didn't rule as a tyrant or a dictator or a despot. He ruled lovingly. He ruled his people tenderly. He continues to do so. And Isaiah said he would be called the Prince of Peace. And as the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds that night over the hills of Bethlehem, they said, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth on those whom his favor rests. Jesus came as the bearer of God's peace. Jesus came to bring God's beautiful shalom to earth. Not the kind of shalom of the Romans who were in charge at the time. It's kind of peace at the end of a sword kind of peace. But this peace that brought reconciliation. Reconciliation between people. Ultimately, reconciliation between God. And that peace was ultimately accomplished at the cross when Jesus took upon himself our sin. He took away that dividing line of sin that stood between us and God so that we could come back and our relationship with God no longer needs to be characterized by hostility, no longer needs to be characterized by enmity, but can now be characterized by peace. We can be friends of God. We can be reconciled to God. That's the greatest shalom imaginable. 
Every other part of shalom emanates from this, that humanity can be reconciled now to God. As the carol says, God and sinners reconciled. That's the heart of peace. It's the heart of what Jesus has come to do, and he achieved it on the cross by reconciling God and humanity within his own body on the cross, by taking away our sin. This is what Christ has done. So he's fulfilled all of these passages from Isaiah. He's fulfilled all of these words, all of these phrases. He is the Prince of Peace. He is mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And that's what we sing at Christmas. That's what we say at Christmas. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But I want to come back again to Isaiah 9. Because as you look at that prophecy that Isaiah wrote, and you think about all that Isaiah talked about, And you look at what Jesus has done and how Jesus has come into the world. I don't know about you. You can still feel like there's this kind of disconnect. Because Isaiah pictured a day. I mean, just let me read you a phrase here from this prophecy. He pictured a day. Here's verse 5 of Isaiah 9. When every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So what Isaiah is saying is... There is going to be a day when there will be no more violence at all. There will be no more bloodshed at all. There will be no more oppression at all. This is a huge vision. And even though we celebrate at Christmas the fact Jesus has come and he's reconciled us to God and we celebrate him as the Prince of Peace, it's still easy, isn't it, to look around the world and go, well, has this really happened? Has everything that Isaiah prophesied here come true? Because it doesn't look like it when you look around the world. It doesn't look like every warrior's boot that's dipped in blood, every, every weapon used in battle has been thrown away. Back at the beginning of December, I opened up Time magazine and I was confronted by these double-page photos of refugees from Myanmar who were fleeing Myanmar, fleeing ethnic cleansing, really, this genocidal campaign that's going on there against a particular group of people, and fleeing for their lives. Young children just being carried for days, people risking their lives, crossing the, the fleeing in many directions, but partly fleeing from Myanmar over to Bangladesh. And those that make it, I mean, even then, they're just facing a very uncertain future. They get in a refugee camp, hopelessly under-resourced. They don't know where life is going. And you've got families trying to just survive this, people fleeing danger, people risking their lives, But either way, their lives were at such great risk. And I I just remember sitting down, looking at these pictures, so confronted by them. And here I am in my home with my family at the beginning of the Christmas season. And we're planning a nice Christmas together. And you've sort of, you know, looking forward to all that December is going to bring and all of this. And you're just looking at these photos and you think, man, this is how some people are going to spend December. Right now, this is how some people are living or not living. This is the reality. We're so incubated from it. We're so numbed to it. But this is the reality, the very present reality right now for people in our world. Incredible suffering. Unbearable pain. And it's this this jarring sense of looking at this prophecy in Isaiah and feeling like this hasn't happened yet. I know Jesus has come. But this day is not here yet. This day when there's an end to violence and bloodshed and corruption and war and so on, that's not here yet. And that's why we've got to remember that Isaiah is not just pointing towards the birth of the Messiah. He's also pointing even further forward, right? He's pointing all the way to the end of the story. He's pointing ultimately to a day beyond our day, a day that's still in the future, a day when Jesus returns again and brings about the fullness of God's shalom 
upon the earth. He's inaugurated the kingdom, but it's not here in its fullness yet. He's begun the mission. He's initiated the work, but it's not yet been brought to completion. Theologians call this the already, not yet kingdom. It's a, there's a paradox to it. It's the already, not yet kingdom. It's already here. Jesus has already come. He's already brought peace, and yet it's not here yet in its fullness, in its entirety. But the day is going to come when this prophecy will literally be fulfilled, and Jesus will bring about the, 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 the kind of shalom that will pervade every square inch of creation, and there will be no more violence or bloodshed or dysfunction or brokenness or sin or corruption or abuse or harassment or whatever it may be, but there will just be peace and joy, righteousness and hope and blessing. Because in the center of it all will be the God that Isaiah talks about, the God of the Bible, Father, Son and Spirit. And I think one of the things we need to do at Christmas is keep that kind of vision in our hearts. It's maybe a little counterintuitive because we spend as Christians the Christmas season looking back to the birth of Jesus, but the heart of the Advent season moves in two directions. It moves back to the birth of Jesus, and yet Advent also points us forward. It points us back to the first coming of Jesus, but it points us on to the second coming of Jesus, and it, it promises us that the best is yet to come. It promises us that no matter how bleak the present may seem, that the end is going to be better than anything we can imagine. The final chapter of the story is going to be so full of glory. It'll make the sufferings of the present life seem insignificant. So we need during the Advent season to keep this picture in our hearts, like Isaiah had this burning picture in his heart of what the final chapter of the story is going to be like when the Prince of Peace returns again and brings hope and brings blessing and brings reconciliation. One writer describes this kind of world with some imaginative kind of phrases, and I'll read it to you because he kind of transposes this into language that relates to our own day. You know, as I was writing in his day, he's using phrases, he's using languages that make sense to his people. But let me read you a description of what a world that is full of shalom would look like in ways that maybe we can understand it better. He says, shalom would include, for example, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and people groups in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and people groups. Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Broadband networks would be strong enough to enable quick downloads. <laughs> Highway overpasses would be graffiti-free. Professors would know students' names while also leading such lively classes that students no longer felt like Facebooking their way through them. Nobody would unfriend anybody. Teachers of third graders would no longer make them sing, I am special, I am special, look at me, look at me, to the tune of Frere Jacques. <laughs> Tow truck drivers and lost motorists would be serene on city streets. Business associates would rejoice in each other's promotions. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate each other's virtues. Blogs would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these accounts and call to each other about them and savor them with their single martini. <laughs> now, that, that's not just a humanistic 
vision of the good life. I think the point is that at the center of that world is God, and that this is a Christ-centered vision of what a world full of, full of shalom would look like, not just a kind of world of hedonistic pleasure. But the point is that this will be a world that will actually take place. And, and what Cornelius Plantinga is trying to do is help us to imagine that kind of world in this day and age, because one day that world really will be here. And we need to hold to that as Christians. It's not just a pipe dream. It's not fantasy or wishful thinking. But as Isaiah saw and heard, this is God's very real promise for this world when Christ returns. And what Jesus is doing in the present is bringing little pieces of that shalom into the now. Because he's not waiting for that day to start bringing peace. He started bringing peace on earth when he was born. And ever since then, Peace has been coming into this world. The Prince of Peace is already at work. It's not all in the not yet realm. There's the already part. And even now, Jesus is bringing peace and he's doing it through us. He's doing it through his people. And he's recruiting us in this mission of extending his peace into the brokenness of this world and extending hope and extending love. And and as we do that, we're getting little tastes of what that future kingdom is going to look like. We only see glimpses of it now. We only hear whispers of it now. We just get the little entree, but we see enough and we know enough to get on board and actually participate with what God is doing in bringing little bits of shalom into the now. So this Wednesday, a few of us are going to go up to Rosedale Retirement Village, and we're going to sing some Christmas carols for the residents up there. It's going to be a rollicking good time. If anyone wants to join us, 1.30, is it 1.30, Margaret, on Wednesday, and uh, we're going to sing some songs, and we're going to hang out with the oldies, and it's going to be great. I'm going to, Josh doesn't know this yet, but I'm going to try and bring a couple of our boys along. Because I, when, we do, when we do these kinds of things, we're not just trying to spread some Christmas cheer, although that might be nice. And we're not just being good Christians. We are participating in what Isaiah is describing and bringing about another little taste of this beautiful shalom that will one day fill the world. Peace on earth. And we're bringing a little more of that into the present. It happens in the most ordinary ways. It happens in the most ordinary conversations, acts of kindness and love, things that are done in Jesus' name to serve and to bless and to enrich the lives of others. A lot of you have already gotten on board with this through the giving tree. All these little care packages that went out this week across homes on the North Shore to bless people in our community and beyond who are having a bit of a hard time of it this Christmas and need a little bit of an extra blessing. And you've done this. You've done, and, and by doing this, again, you're not just being good moral people. They're not just good acts of charity, but you're participating in bringing about a little taste of new creation, a little taste of shalom, a little piece of that future kingdom that's coming about in the present. That's what's going on. The smallest little act done with great love becomes part of a huge story that's not finished yet. And so I would encourage you, And gently challenge you, you look at the days left till Christmas, look out across this week, is there one thing you could do that would extend something of God's shalom into the world around you? Maybe just on your street, there's a mum in our church who's going to bake some cookies, get her boys and take them to the neighbours and knock on some doors where she's just moved into the neighbourhood and bless some other people through that simple act of kindness. Is there a way of you personally showing the love of Christ to someone? Maybe think about someone outside of our church community. Because I think we're quite good at caring for each other. But is there someone outside of our church community, someone on your street, someone at your work, a parent at your kid's school or kindy, that you could in some way be a blessing, show the love of Jesus 
doesn't have to be a great thing, just a small thing done with great love means the world. And as you do that, do it mindful of the fact you're participating in something much bigger than yourself. You're participating in this vision that Isaiah spoke two and a half millennia ago, that God is bringing about this kingdom of peace and Jesus is still at work through you, through me, doing that today. And it's all in anticipation of the day when he's going to bring it to completion. We're not going to do this all ourselves. Don't think that if we just do enough acts of kindness, one day this future will suddenly be here. No, it's going to take the second coming of Christ to bring about that kingdom. But our calling in the present is to bring about a little entree of the final banquet, a little whisper, a few notes of the final symphony. But that's our calling. That's our invitation. And that's what we're doing every time we show the love of Jesus, share the love of Jesus in ordinary ways. I love the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. We're going to sing it in a moment. And I particularly love it because of the second verse, which describes this kind of picture, describes this kind of world. It says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is a brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Still remember singing that Christmas carol in a church in Bethlehem, among a people longing for peace, longing for shalom, or salam in Arabic, to come through the gospel, through Christ. But it's not just over there, it's here, it's today, it's now, it's Auckland 21st century. We need that gospel of peace just as much. And God's calling us to be a part of it and get on board with it. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day. Our hearts burn for that day like Isaiah's heart burned for it, Jesus. That day when you're going to come and you're going to pour shalom out like a flood upon the world. But Jesus, I want to pray that as we sit here now in a moment of quietness in an otherwise really busy time of the year, that you would just press upon our hearts and our minds and our consciousness the things, the quiet things that you might be calling us to do to bring about a little taste of that peace now. Jesus, would you call us to be people of shalom in our own homes? Would you show us, Jesus, how we can be people of shalom in our own flat? Can you show us how we can be people of shalom in our workplaces, in our social lives, in our gyms, at the beach. Jesus, show us how we can be people of shalom on holiday. And as we travel towards Christmas Day, as we travel towards this Advent season, God, would you keep us looking back to when you first came as a baby, celebrating your arrival into this world? And would you keep us anticipating that day when you will come and make all things new and keep us mindful of how we can participate with you in that mission, in the present, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415-0455 Thank you for listening.